My name's James Hawkins, and I'm a piano player. I've just got a new single out. It's called You Got A Day. It's completely different to what all the piano pieces have been putting out. Um, my piano pieces have been sort of neoclassical, stroke, ambient. Um, nice little pieces, um, but just basically all piano-based. Um, no singing, just instrumentals. So I had an urge <laughs> to do something slightly different. I wanted, I've, one day I just felt fantastic in myself that um, I've come through 30 odd years of um, addiction um, to all sorts of things, um, mainly alcohol, um, but other drugs as well. And towards the end um, of that sort of 30 year period, psychiatric drugs. And um, I cleansed myself of everything like that, that would affect my head. And I felt joyous that my mind is now free, totally free, uncaged, unfettered, unchained. And it was in the morning and um, it was like, I have a day. I have a day. I'm not dead. I actually have a day, a whole day to enjoy, to do something constructive, artistically, help somebody, support somebody at work. I do that. Um, and it was like, I've, I have given myself a gift that I have this day and I, I have a responsibility to me um, to make the best of it and to, most of all, enjoy it. You've got a day. Everybody's got a day. And um, I know... <laughs> It can be pretty shit for some people, it really can be. Um, and, you know, I deal with it on a day, daily basis at work that youngsters' lives can be shit. And me having this day to put a little bit of positivity into somebody else's life, a youngster's life. Um, and when I was that age, it was a massive problem for me, which probably led into these addictions and you know what I can see it in these youngsters as well that some form of chemical grudge might be an answer at the moment for them a temporary band-aid if you like and this will lead as it led for me into um, a lot a long time of addiction addiction okay I was um functioning, if you like, in what we call our society, um, holding down responsible jobs, um, holding down a relationship. Now, I have to say that, that uh, my relationship with a female, Sarah, um, is more down to her than me. Um, she has um, persevered with me through all the trials and tribulations and all the difficulties that I've presented <coughs> to her. Um, and, um, I, st I still don't understand why she's, why she has, she must see some goodness in me, which 
in gives me the faith to think also that I, I may be it may be worth me living, if you like. Um, and living with that, and this is a, this is like a trial now, also because um, I'm I'm now cha- I've, I've changed again, you know, multifaceted all through through my life. I've now changed again into an, with another period of life where um, I have to come to terms with my brain activity as it is in its raw state, um, and that means sometimes my filter system when I'm dealing with people um, in conversation or uh, in behaviour wise isn't really there. I need to sort of restructure it a little bit um, in this unfettered state to be more conducive to getting along with people in a more um, productive, friendly way, I suppose, uh, especially Sarah, because, you know, I'm afraid she gets it all. She gets the raw me. Um, when I'm out and around, obviously I put this mask on and, and my filter system is in place a little bit. And uh, I don't present as I do at home, and um, it's quite difficult at home because my behaviour is quite, as I say, it's in its raw state. So this has to be tempered a little bit over a period of time. And I mean, that sort of that sort of um, stage at the moment where I'm learning about myself, going back really to being a child. Um, and of course, that brings the pro- back some of the problems that I had when I was a child. So dreams um, sleeping is a problem um, nightmares and anxiety dreams um, are prevalent now so I'm not getting much sleep which doesn't also help but it's a bit of a rebirth so um, I'm having to find my way again in a relationship my most important thing is the relationship with with Sarah um, and my relationship with the external world in this sort of perceived reality this perception that we all have in our head of what's around us and our interaction within it um, which includes interaction with other people but it also includes um, creativity Um, the piano as I've said in previous podcasts that this is my this is like a conduit of my how I feel Um, it's uh, the piano understands me in a way that nothing else does, or music, if you like, in, in general. Um, and me producing it, creating it, um, allows me to exercise some feelings I have in me, which may be frustration, maybe anger, and in this case, joy. Um, so how it came about was that um, Emily Dolan Davis, uh, she's a drummer who's been on tour with Kim Wilde, uh, she also plays with Roxy Music, and I think if I think if I get it right, she's actually drumming on the Voice, which is um, isn't it a TV program of some talent contest, singing I assume, um, which is pretty amazing. Anyway, she has these these samples of her drumming um, online, and uh, I was inspired by one of one of her drumming samples uh, that went on for about over you know three minutes of, of this drum pattern that she was laying down. And uh, I jammed to it and made up this, this, this piano, electric piano, jazzy, funky, bluesy type of um, riff or this, this arrangement, if you like, this, this, this jam. And, uh, 
I started singing You Got a Day and for some reason that's all I could say really was You Got a Day and I was just, just blurting this out um, in a sort of scat. I won't call it singing, it's not really singing. It's um, I was making the voice with my larynx and it's being projected through my mouth um, into, the, into the microphone and uh, it was just an, exp an expression basically. Um, and... Anyway, I, you know, I put a bit of back into uh, bass and things, and I thought it sounded quite good. So I sent it to Emily. I said, you know, what do you think? I'm using your drums in this, and she said, she sort of, she meant, she said that it's really good, you know, and she was really pleased with it. And uh, if I was going to release it, then she'd want a copy of it, and you know, get out on her social media and in her and her thing. And uh, I thought, well, that's pretty positive. So. I'll suck it out. And I've sort of made this bit of a crazy video to go with it, um, which you can see. So I've said sort of in the past that I might want to talk about addiction. Um, addiction is a pretty personal thing, isn't it? Um, for every addict, there's a different reason for them being an addict. Um, I work with a lot of youngsters who've been diagnosed with autism. And for every different person I have with this diagnosis of autism, there's a different version of autism. Um, so there's a multitude of, of versions of that. So there's also obviously a multitude of versions of um, addiction and the reasons why. Um, and obviously the so-called experts have sort of looked at it and uh, they still don't understand addiction and why, why we get addicted to things. There's several ideas, <clears throat> obviously, um, it's nature nurture. Um, it's, it can be part of who you are, your genetics, um, your physical makeup, the biological model, if you like, um, and also the environment, the, the nurture bit, where how you're brought up. You know, we're we brought up in an environment of addicts, or we're, uh, you know, was it a struggle? Were you in poverty? Were uh, I, I don't know, hedonistic way? Um, you know, your environment's going to mould and how you go through life. Um, also with the genetic way, the biological model, you know, if you have uh, some neurological, I'm not going to call it disorder because I really hate that, that word, but a neurological way that your brain works that would lead to difficulties fitting into this so-called society of ours or whatever, that um, a drug um, makes it easier, makes it better, or we can blanket out. Somebody described um, being on opiates, on heroin in particular, as um, curling up with a lovely warm blanket. You know, it's comforting. It's, uh, it gives you comfort and escapism, I suppose. So, um, you know, if you look at the biological model um, from what we can gather, or what so-called experts have gathered, is um, this little reward thing that we have neurological little neurons fire and give you like a reward so your little dopamine stuff comes out your your neurotransmitters and you feel good um they call, like a reward thing you feel good about doing something so you might do have that with a form of exercise feel good about doing that you might feel about having great interact that with a great interaction with somebody you might feel better with so-called falling in love whatever that means um so um, creativity gives you a reward, something gives you a reward. And they tend to think that a drug might, especially alcohol, 
um, sort of overrides this, sort of hijacks this, your brain doing this. Um, so you, you sort of stop getting the reward from those things and only get the reward from that drug. And then when that drug is not present, um, you can go, your, your brain is like saying, well, hang on a minute. I'm going to create all these problems. I'm going to make you feel absolutely shit. Um, depression, physical, whatever it is, if you don't give me that drug again. And therefore you need to resupply your brain with that drug to give you that reward or to make you good. And um, the trouble is when that then becomes the norm and um, you have to take it to feel normal and all this, you know, it's a normal way of life. I, I can remember that um, it, with alcohol, um, it was a bottle of wine just to normalise. So that's just to get myself back into a, into a, a mental framework where I could f sort of function normally, if you like, I felt normally. So I remember when I did first try alcohol and maybe got a bit drunk, I suppose, it was like all of a sudden uh, my struggles and my difficulties faded away. Um, I could be myself. Um, I could communicate with people easily. It wasn't a struggle. I didn't have to analyse things. I didn't not fit. I fitted. And this is the what alcohol did to me. I fitted. Going to the pub and stuff. I fitted somewhere. I fitted into this drinking community. Um, and it's this fit that... I needed and became a norm for 30 odd years, that fit, via alcohol. Um, I also tried other things, obviously. Um, I won't go through the whole list of drugs that I tried, but um, that was all sort of more recreational and, and fun until they became a problem. Um, cannabis obviously um, became a psychological problem. I think it affected me with my anxiety and my paranoia and uh, I got into a bit of a state with it um, unable to, to really function and so that went out the window and um, the stimulants they still don't really, really know that they don't have like a medical thing to be able to help um, addition to stimulants like your cocaine or your methamphetamines and stuff like that they still don't with other things maybe like alcohol and nicotine stuff like that they may have sort of a medical thing, a medical model, which they can approach with that. Um, opiates, for instance, um, they can because, um, you know, we th have things like um, uh, your... Uh, methadone and uh, stuff like that to, to help with the addiction to that and withdrawal things. Alcohol, they sort of have the same... They can, you can be prescribed medication. I did it all without any of that. Although I did go into so-called rehab about three or four times. Um, and none of it was successful. Um, I had therapy and stuff for a couple of years and also CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy. And uh, none of it worked for me. So the only thing that worked was me. I did it. I had to do it myself. And I had to want to do it, obviously. It's a common theme. 
had to want to do. Um, and at the end of the alcohol years, I suppose, for the last three or four years, um, I said I was like a functioning addict all through, but the last three or four years, definitely not. Um, couldn't hold down the job. Uh, Relationship-wise, was very tenuous. Um, I was you know, scarfing off work to just go drinking. Um, it was impossible, I couldn't do it. I just was not functioning at all. The only thing that was, was consuming me was, you know, getting a drink and getting under the influence of it. And um, also with a medical model, with a biological model, um, you know, brain exploration and everything else is quite a new thing, really. Uh, as far as physicalness of the brain and what it does, I mean, you know, for generations, for thousands of years, we've experimented psychologically with the brain, with you know your ayahuasca and, and things like that, um, and little journeys that we can t take us up off with the shaman and all this sort of business. Um, but you know, so-called experts again have sort of identified this frontal cortex, which is where all your decision-making processes go on. That they think, and um, when you're an addict, you know, they think that um, your frontal cortex is can be destroyed. Basically, you know, it really, really affects this frontal cortex, and uh, your decision making ability goes right out the window. So, you know, you can say, okay, when I wake up today, I know if I'm gonna if I go and open that bottle of wine, um, it's just going to lead on to the rest of the day being. Um, an alcoholic sort of stupor, and oh, I'm going to waste a day doing that. Your you, your brain would tell you that, but because your decision making process has gone completely out of the window, you cannot rationalise that thought in order to make a decision for the better, and not to do that. So your decision making goes to having that drink. Go down the bookies. You know that you're going to lose. I mean, gambling, you, you are going to lose more often than not. So yeah, addiction to gambling will tell your frontal cortex that, or the, the, the actual addiction and the frontal cortex sort of um, destruction won't allow you to make that decision not to do that. So, anything through life, your decision-making will not necessarily be something that you can do that will make you do things better in your life. It will turn to the things that you're addicted to that are more destructive, whether you can rationally think it right through and imagine the consequences and foretell what might happen, which is usually bad, your decision-making process will err on the side of those things that will cock everything up. So if we sort of go on with the frontal cortex type thing and the decision-making process, um, apparently teens, when you're in your teens, um, this thing is all a bit wild anyway, and the rewarding thing um, in your brain, the neurotransmitters uh, are also a bit wild in your teens. 
And um, therefore, if you introduce any form of stimulant or any 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 sort of drug addictive anything in your teens, you're more susceptible to um, for that to take a greater effect, and also the addictive nature of it to be greater. Um, this worries me a lot. Um, with you know working with the youngsters that I am at the moment, that um, if they are. I mean, yeah, a lot of them do smoke weed, um, and and tr drugs are, you know, is things is a thing in our culture that um, it's not romanticised, but um, it is a thing that you know you're going to try when you're young. Um, the reasons for that, again, sociological reasons, cultural reasons, um, societal reasons, are probably another complete subject. Um, and when I've been working in mental health, I've had to work with youngsters, usually young men, to be honest with you, um, in their early 20s um, that are have mental illness and they have psychosis. And um, they have um, psychosis through substance abuse, drug-induced psychosis. Um, and there's a problem, and um, I've spoken to quite a lot of people that started uh, smoking weed and stuff, you know, in their early teens, and experimenting with other things. And you know, when you when your brain has been formed, um, and also you, it's, you, you know, the reactions of your brain and neurotransmitters are heightened. I mean, this stuff, you know, I've seen it. It can do some real damage. Um, obviously, you know. It, also, there are people that it doesn't, and again, you know, people can have a a normal so-called life and so-called normal life. So, you know, through by you know, smoke weed all their life and and done things recreationally, and it's not been a problem. But what I've seen and the problems I've seen, you know, it is pretty serious um, and devastating. Not just for that person, that young person, but for the family and for everybody around them, their friends and everything. Um, and you know, just you just got to be you got to be careful. I mean, this you know. Anyway, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lecture anybody about the pros and cons of taking. I mean, there's no point. People would do anyway. Whether whoever says anything about it, I mean, especially youngsters. I mean, they're gonna experiment. That's what that's what you do when you're teens, isn't it? Um, and all I can do is give people the benefit of my experience. Um, it's not advice. I never advise anybody. Um, I just say, look, this in my experience, this, this thing has happened uh, to me and to other people, and um, you know, it's up to you what you what what you do with this piece of information. Um, and you know, hope for the best. That's what we do really in life, isn't it? Hope for the best. Anyway. So what I haven't talked about is in detail is uh, psychiatric drugs. Now, <clears throat> I was prescribed um, antidepressants, and when I was at my words, I was uh, prescribed antipsychotics. Um, the antidepressants were the SSRIs, the um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Um, and I've got to be honest that I found the addiction to these um, harder to break than everything else. Um, probably on the par was alcohol. Um, 
yes, they sort of helped temporarily. I was in a bit of a crisis situation. Um, and then the disadvantages, which there are a lot, a lot of side effects. Um, you know, you, you, you're, you're suppressed, basically. Um, your, your thoughts, your mind, your brain is suppressed. Um, and um, with that, it's like somebody described it as wading through treacle, which is what life is, is a, 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 like a little bit there. Um, uh, but they do have advantages for a short time, which I found. Um, afterwards, the disadvantages outweighed the advantages by far. And I was on them for a long time. And um, coming off them was a complete nightmare. Um, I won't go into all the symptoms. Um, it's like when, when your brain is emerging from complete docility, uh, complete suppression. Um, so dreams become very, very vivid. Um, and they are constant, when, obviously when you're sleeping, um, very, very vivid. And you wake up and it's, it's as though you've experienced a whole thing the whole thing i mean the feelings and emotions that i experienced or do still do experience with with dreams is is real and uh, when when i wake up in the morning um those feelings and emotions are there still and they are and they are real and um sort of carried on into the day um so this all was heightened when i was coming off respiratory especially the antipsychotic um and also with psychiatric medications, especially like risperidone and things, uh, you gain weight. You put on weight physically, put on weight. And this obviously has a detrimental effect on your self-esteem and well-being mentally. Um, you know, you become, I became fat. Um, and also, obviously, alcohol intake as well. Combine alcohol and psychiatric drugs and, uh, you know, you balloon, basically. Um, so there's all that to deal with. Um and, you know, I tried Risperidone, I tried to come off several times. And the only way to do it for, for me was to stop completely and just have to go cold turkey. And the cold turkey lasted months. Um, but I think I've sort of come through it now. Antidepressants weren't as bad. Um, it's like... <sighs> Your brain has a complete need for something, and once you remove that need, that thing, that's always desiring, and uh, makes you feel crap. Um, and anti-psychiatric medication are, are no different, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, they made me feel really crap, but I knew um, that I had to go through it all to come out the other side. And blow me, I tell you what. It is miles, miles different, miles, miles better. Um, you know, these SSRIs, you know, they even think these days with current research, it's, you know, actually, as far as the depressive symptoms are concerned, it doesn't really help that much. Maybe initially, but certainly um, not long term. Yeah, you're, you know, people prescribe these things uh, all the time and uh, prescribe them for a long term uh, and people can't come off of them. Um, yes, yeah, big pharma, lovely. You know, they're making a lot of money. Um, but it's not doing us any good whatsoever, these psychiatric meds. Um, 
Yeah, I know. You know, I've dealt with people who's been through real psychotic episodes and become hospitalised and sectioned and uh, come out of hospital and they're on depot. You know, they're on injections once every three months, whatever it is. And uh, it's difficult for them to to go through their life and how, you know, what, the work I've been doing with them, it's, it's, that's been an obstacle. Um, but maybe for severe cases, maybe, I mean, that is, a, that is one, it is a sort of an answer to to um, reduce psychosis in a way that is so debilitating that you have to be sessioned. So for maybe the not quite so heavy mental health problems, um, Think of medication, it's like the first instance you go to the GP and uh, you may have symptoms of depression and the first thing they're going to do is put you on antidepressants. Um, I think it's wrong. It's a real holistic thing that we need to think about, the whole, whole gamut of, of your life. And I think that medication should be last resort. That's my opinion. But all of that is in the past. Now... If I can do that, if I can do that, other people can too. And nobody listens to my podcast. Maybe sometime in the future they might. But you know, if you know, if you are struggling, you are listening to this podcast, then you, you know, you the likelihood is that you can do. I mean, there's loads of people that have done it. There's loads of celebrities that have gone through it. Um, but mostly, you have to do it. You are the main factor in this, and you can do it. Um, and that's the message I wanted to convey. Apart from the joyousness of not being addicted to anything, I mean, it it really is fantastic. I know it's a cliche. I know everybody says it, and ex-addict will say it. But it really, really is the best thing ever. Um, it reminds me of a story about Iggy Paul, um, a notorious drug taker. Um, he woke up one morning and he, th- he sort of thought, I wonder what it's like not to take drugs. So he didn't and found it was the most wonderful experience <laughs> that he had. And um, therefore, he decided not to and came off everything. And it really is a fantastic experience. And remember, whatever shit you're in, you've got a day. And please, please, please make the most of it. Now